Welcome to Chapels from Rosedale Bible College. Thanks for joining our community for weekly chapels recorded on our campus in Rosedale, Ohio. We hope you are challenged and inspired by what you hear. Enjoy. As I was thinking about this, half of you might be looking up here and saying, I saw this guy around once or twice. Who is he? Why is he here? Why is he speaking in my chapel? As Dion said, I'm an adjunct. I looked up what adjunct means this morning. Adjunct, a thing added to something else as a supplementary rather than an essential part. That is what I am. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. I've had the opportunity and the privilege to speak in a few Pathways Chapel talks over the years, but this is the first time I had a chance to share in a regular chapel, so I'm looking forward to what God has for us this morning. We are in Ephesians. Um, I feel it's a bit of a disadvantage because I haven't had a chance to listen to all the other uh, talks beforehand. I picked up a couple of the podcasts that were posted and did listen to a few of the sessions, so I know some of the things that you guys have been talking about. Obviously, I'm just an adjunct. I'm not an essential part. Um, I'm coming at it from a different perspective. My career path is much different than the career paths that your other speakers have followed. Uh, I make my living as an engineer working for Intel. Uh, that's what I'm doing most of my day. So I, I'm coming from it from that sort of mindset. Um, but let's see how God can can speak through and and speak to each of us today. You know, we've been reading through Ephesians. We're up to chapter four, and so far, you know, Paul's been laying out a great case of everything that Christ has done for us. You know, reminding us in chapter 2 that we were just like the world, but by the grace of God, he saved us. He's now holding us up as his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for to do good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. And you know, we keep seeing again and again what, what Christ has done for us. It's all about Christ. And now we're sort of turning the page. And Paul's going to give us a bit of a call to action here in verse 4. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. I will be reading, uh, I think I'm responsible for the first 16 verses. If not, I'm stepping on somebody else's toes. Um, I'll be reading out of the ESV this morning. Why don't we stand together uh, for the reading of God's word? Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, 
When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Parentheses. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. End parentheses. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint and which is equipped where when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive. It is breathing. It is applicable to us in our situation today. And I pray that you'll open our hearts and minds for what you have for us through this passage as we look deeper into what Paul is saying to us. God, I just ask that your presence will be moving among us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks. You may be seated. As I mentioned, Paul is now kind of turning the page in this book. He built a foundation reminding us of all that Christ has done for us, reminding our position in Christ. Um, and now we have this call to action. And when Dion asked me a month and a half ago if I would be willing to speak and showed me the uh, passage he asked me to speak on and the date, I, I looked at the passage and quickly with verse 1 thought, yes, I would love to speak on that passage. Verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We could probably spend our entire time on that one verse. One interesting thing to note, this is the second time that Paul is reminding us he's writing this from prison. If you flip back to chapter 3, he starts that chapter. Obviously, he didn't have chapters in verse uh, in that time, but he started that portion of the letter also uh, stating that he was a prisoner, a prisoner for the Lord. Probably something to that, that he's reminding us twice, mentioning it twice. You know, we're all learners here. You're all students. You know that when your professors are talking, it's important. If they repeat themselves, it's really important and probably on the test. So Paul's repeating himself here. And I'm not exactly sure what all he's thinking about, why all he's saying this. He's pointing out that he's a prisoner for the Lord. It's not because he did some wrong other than live out his faith, live out his convictions for God. I've never been a prisoner. Hope to never be. I don't know about all of you. Hopefully you've never been prisoners either. Uh, but if I was a prisoner, 
I think I would go through a why God, why did you let this happen to me phase and probably waste some of that time. It seems pretty clear that Paul is not going through that type of phase. He's not wasting his time. Instead, he's clearly thinking through very deeply about the gospel, the story of the scriptures, how it applies to us, and then sharing that, writing letters and sharing that with believers. You know, another angle he might be as he considers himself a prisoner to the Lord, even though he's captive by Roman authorities, he might realize that the more he digs in, the more he learns and grows in God, he's becoming captive to what Jesus has done for each and every one of us. So Paul is a prisoner for the Lord as he's writing this, and he's writing this to believers, the church, which I trust many of us, almost all of us, I hope, are part of. And he's giving a call to action. He's not suggesting a call to action here. He's not saying this is a good idea. He's urging us to do something. This is important. And what he's urging us to do is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That idea of calling, it's one of the things that attracted me to being willing to speak on this portion of scripture. Every time I've shared in my Pathways uh, talk, I've talked about calling and how I think in the church we do a disservice when we don't recognize that all of us are called. We think of pastors as being called, yes. We think of missionaries as being called, yes. But all of us have a calling. We could be called to being a stay-at-home parent, a farmer, a truck driver, a plumber, a grocery store worker, an electrician, a factory worker. Yes, even a pre-silicon design verification engineer for Intel. We all have a calling. And I believe that, and I think it's important for us to adjust our mindset and to recognize that, that all of us are called. It's not just pastors or or missionaries, people in in full-time ministry. Anything that we do can and should be done from that perspective and done for God's honor and for God's glory. But as I reflected on this verse over the past month and a half, I think Paul is, is talking about something deeper than vocation. So what is this calling that Paul's talking about uh, to which we have been called? I tried to st- seek out an answer to that, doing some studying. Um, one resource suggested that Paul here is just urging the believers to live meaningful lives, meaningful from a kingdom perspective, which may or may not look as successful from a earthly perspective. That's part of it, I believe. You know, another reference, another resource said that our calling that Paul's talking about here is to reflect the very character and heart of Jesus Christ. And based on the foundation that Paul has laid in the first three chapters of this letter, I think that's, you know, a big part of it. Our calling is to reflect the very character and heart of Jesus Christ. And that's a big calling. 
And that's a calling that we can't do by ourselves. We can only do it by the power of God with the help of the Holy Spirit living in and through us. Paul said more about this in Romans 8, 29. He said, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Don't get hung up by that word predestined there. Uh, and if we push this back even further, let's go back to the beginning of the book. Genesis chapter 1, 26, 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, how? In his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. The creator, God, created us in his image, part of what we've been created and designed to do is to reflect the image of God, of Christ, as Paul said in Romans. That's truth. You know, I come from a, I'm in a scientific engineering career. I like to base my truth on things that can be proven with science, but I also have a deep faith knowing that there's some things that just can't be, and we have to have faith. I have faith that that is truth. Yes, it's universal truth. Others may reject it. Others may not believe it, but that doesn't make it any less true. And as believers, we need to live our lives worthy of this calling to be image bearers of Christ. We were created in God's own image. Are we reflecting that to the world around us? And again, as I was reflecting on that truth, thinking through that, um, it dawned on me that we also need to recognize that even those who reject this truth, who don't believe that, I believe it's true, which implies that they too were created in God's image. You look around this world and it's, there's a lot of awful things going on, a lot of evil out there. Um, just a few weeks ago, I was in a, a service where we were praying, and I was thinking through this as we were praying, and somebody prayed um, that God would, would work and, and prayed against evil people. And I don't want to offend the person that was praying, but I'm like, hmm, I don't know if I agree with that. There's people that are controlled by evil, yes, but I don't know if I want to go as far to say that they're evil people. There's people controlled by evil, whether they don't realize it, they were still created in God's image. God still sees them as his creation. God gave them potential. And I think part of our calling, not only is to reflect the image of God, is but to see others in that way too to see others in the eyes that God sees them. So how do we do this? How do we live our lives worthy of this, this broad calling, this huge calling to reflect the image of Christ, to be image bearers? How do we walk worthy in the manner of that calling? Verse 2, Paul answers, <clears throat> with all humility 
and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. A few things there. Humility, Romans 12, 3, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Humility doesn't come easily for us. The opposite of humility is selfishness. Um, That's natural. When we're born, we're born with a sin nature. We're by nature selfish. I'm not going to impress you with my knowledge of Greek because I don't have a knowledge of Greek, but one of my resources said that the Greek word for humility here means to rein in or to curb. So what, what Paul's talking about here is, is reining in that natural desire to be selfish. That's what humility is all about, reining that in and helping to shape us in that way. And proper understanding of, of this also changes how we see others you know, Paul reminded us in the start of Ephesians chapter 2 that just like everybody else in the world, we too were sinners far from God. But it was by the grace of God that we are saved if we receive that gift. Does this help us, does humility help us achieve the calling and reflecting Christ to the world? Well, you bet. Philippians 2, 6 and 7, Christ Jesus who thought he was who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Jesus Christ, equal with God, came to the earth to be a man, to walk among us. Humility is in his character. If we can grow in that, it will help us to reflect the image of Christ. Second thing Paul mentioned was gentleness. Gentleness often is maybe redefined as meekness, sometimes often probably thought of weakness. Uh, In my research, it was pointed out that biblical gentleness is not weakness at all. Uh, I saw a definition as really being able to suffer injury without becoming angry or or resulting into or trying to revenge, take revenge or becoming bitter. Again, this is not our natural tendency. When we're hurt by others, we often get angry. We often want revenge. We often become bitter. But Paul is urging us to buck this natural trend as part of walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. A quote that I found that I thought was helpful. Every person is powerful. We can speak words that influence others. We can act in ways that help or hurt And we can choose what influences will inform our words and action. Gentleness constrains and channels that power. To be gentle is to recognize that God's ways and thoughts are high above our own. Again, does this help us reflect Christ? Matthew 12, or I'm sorry, 11, 29, Jesus speaking, I am gentle and humble of heart. The first two characteristics we talked about, uh, Jesus was. And we know that we saw how Jesus was deeply hurt, especially leading up to the cross, but he didn't become angry. He didn't seek revenge. He still loved those who were hurting him. I'm thankful for this because I know that I've hurt Jesus with my sin. We all have. And I can be assured that he still loves me. 
because of his gentleness. So we talked about humility, we talked about gentleness. Remember, it's the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us that allows us to live our lives like this. It's not something we can naturally do on our own. Third thing, patience, how we respond when we see others fail or when they get under our skin or when they just don't seem to get it or those people that are controlled by evil. We need to be able to endure with our temper intact. We need to be able to patient to allow God work in their lives. And we do this by, as Paul says here, bearing with one another in love. And the final characteristic here is eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. You know, we look different. We are different. But we have to be united and joined as one by the spirit. Um, we are one because he has made us one. And then in the verses that follow, Paul pushes this idea of unity, and what a refreshing concept for today. Again, when Dion asked me if I would share on this specific date, I look at the calendar and I saw another event that happened yesterday, not the lunar eclipse, that was not on my radar. Yesterday was the midterm elections in America. We live in a culture, in a time, when our political system is extremely deeply divided and there's division all around us. Not just America, I know that other nations have their own set of issues as well, but it's fresh in my mind because of what we just came through, the, next, the last election cycle. Thankfully, you're all busy with your coursework, so you weren't watching TV or looking at ads, but you can't watch TV without seeing political ads. And they no longer talk about what they can do. They talk about how corrupt and how evil and how destructive their opponent is. They divide. They strive on dividing. It's interesting. I, I try to stay up on it. And a poll that struck me a couple weeks ago that I saw on one of the major news outlets that I looked up again this morning to make sure I was remembering it correctly. The poll question was kind of extreme. They asked people in America, what percentage of you, or, or do you think that the opposite party is ultimately going to destroy America? A very harsh conclusion. Not just has policies that you don't quite agree with or might impact the economy that's destroy our country. And the sobering thing was the results of that, both parties looking at each other, was above 80% said yes. We are so divided. And that just becomes the norm. And it's not just our politics. You know, we're divided in other ways. And, and we use that, there's differences in those divisions to, to build walls and to look at others as the enemy when they're not. How do we treat how do we treat people when we're in a culture like this? Have we ever been this divided? I can't remember a time in my lifetime. How do we treat people when, when they have differences? Do we use them to divide or are we going to try and unify? Is this a cancer that's actually spreading into the church that we need to be aware of? 
Romans 12, 1 to 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, but that the testing, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And I commend each of you for committing to some of your time, whether it's just one term whether it's two years or three years that you're here at Rosedale, immersed in this body, in this community, where you are deliberately um, you know, trans- being transformed by the renewal of your mind. You're being open to studying the scriptures, to listening to what God has for your life. And that is so needed in our culture. So I commend you for that. Paul goes on here and gives us seven unifying truths to, that celebrate the unity of the Spirit that believers should celebrate, things that, as believers, we really should be coming together on. Verse 4, there is one body, there is one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's look briefly at some of these. One body, the body of Christ. This is who Paul is speaking to. Um, The Bible makes it very clear that when we believe and become part of his kingdom, his body, um, we are part of the body, the church. Um, Paul talks about this idea in other passages, other books that we're familiar with, uses the analogy of the human body. Christ is the head of the body. All of us are the other parts. All of us belong to each other. This should be something that unifies us. We're all important part, have important parts to play. It doesn't matter what differences we might have. We are all part of one body. And praise God that when, when Christ comes back, all these man-made differences go away anyway. So why should we let them bother us now? Why should we spend so much time worrying about them now? Let's focus on these unifying characteristics. We're part of one body, one spirit, the Holy Spirit. When we come to know Jesus as our Savior, we receive this spirit. The Bible tells us that. One spirit, not multiple spirits, but one spirit. This implies that the same spirit that's poured out in Acts chapter 2, I just read through that this morning. It's part of my morning devotions, Pentecost. The spirit that was poured out that caused, you know, the apostles to go into speaking different languages and preaching powerful sermons and drew many, many to Christ. That same spirit is the spirit that we have. This is a spirit that is the one who speaks truth, which implies that there's only one truth, if there's only one spirit. I know that's going to step on a lot of people's toes, especially in our culture, but there's one truth because there's one spirit. There's one hope. What is our hope? What do we hope in? Probably many things that we hope in. We hope that someday we survive our classes. We hope that Someday we'll have a meaningful career, maybe. We hope that we have a good relationship with our spouse, maybe hope for kids, maybe hope for um, you know, meaningful opportunities to serve the church. These are great things. 
but not all of them are, um, you know, what the ultimate hope is. And I saw somebody made the statement. I probably agree with this. I don't know. They didn't present evidence to back this up, but they said that the majority of Christians still have their hope in things that are of this world or in this lifetime. Titus 2.13 sort of clarifies what this hope should be, waiting for our blessed hope, here we go, for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ is coming back someday, and we have that hope that whatever we see around us is not going to last forever. It's all about Christ. It's all about the eternal kingdom. He is our blessed hope. He is the fulfillment of our salvation. Better pick up the pace. One Lord, 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. Praise God, there's only one Lord that we have to serve under. One faith, you know, the things we hold most dear. One baptism in my studies of this passage, I I discovered that this actually is something that a lot of commentators have debated, scholars have debated exactly what Paul was talking about with the one baptism because you read throughout the New Testament, you see different types of baptisms, but they're really all symbols of what the Spirit has done for us. Baptism is a symbol of being, you know, immersed of being enveloped in the body of Christ. One baptism. And one God and Father of all. Again, who is all here? All is the church, the body, the body of Christ. One God and Father of all who is over all. He's sovereign over all of our lives. He's in all. He's working in all of us as believers and through all. He's working through all of us as believers. To be clear, these seven underlying unifying truths don't mean that there's no diversity in the body. We're not the same, praise God. How many Dion's do we really need? We are different and unique, and that should be celebrated. But we also need to realize that we have these things that should be unifying us, that as believers we should be rallying around. Continuing on, verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Uh, Footnote here, the Greek word that was used here both includes both men and women, so women don't get hung up on the word men there. Um, This is for all of us. You know, Paul's loosely quoting a, a passage from David in Psalm 68 when David's coming back from a victory and celebrating his victory and, and you know, using that sort of an, as an analogy for what Christ has done when he was on earth and his victory as he ascended to heaven. Um, talks about how God is going to give personally gifts to each one of us. We don't get the standard package. We get something personal, something individualized for each of us. According to the measure of Christ's gift, think about it. Christ gave everything, his life. So we can be confident that he will be able to give us what we need to fulfill this calling we've been talking about. Um, 
what we need to do, the good works that he prepared in advance for us to do, which he mentioned in chapter two. But it's not evenly distributed. I'm not going to say that I understand why this is, but we shouldn't be surprised at this. Jesus shared a few parables where he would talk about servants and masters, and masters would go away and leave the servants various amounts of either treasure or talent, come back, and the the servants would report, and the ones that had a lot often would use them and multiply them. And in the parables I'm thinking of, the ones that had little would hide them so they wouldn't lose them. And the point of Jesus' parables there was to, to remind us and encourage us, it doesn't matter what we've been giving, let's use what we have um, for God's honor, for God's glory. Let's use, whether it's a lot or a little. Let's not get hung up on the gifts that we weren't given. Let's learn to use the ones we have received. Then Paul threw in this couple of verses here that were in parentheses, which I found interesting in saying he ascended. What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who has ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill, uh, might fill all things. Typically, when something's in parentheses, Paul's, the author is clarifying something. I didn't spend the time to understand exactly why Paul threw this in parentheses, referring to what Christ did for us. I already read a, a part of Philippians 2, which I think shows it in such great, um, succinct manner, how Jesus was equal with God, didn't consider that something to be grasped, but came to earth as a man and then ascended. That's what Paul's reminding us of here. Moving on, verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Four giftings here for what we may think of as church leadership giftings, apostles, prophets, maybe not in our culture, our day and age. Uh, They were given mainly to establish the foundations of the church in the early church, especially apostles. Um, we still have prophets around us today, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. You might be thinking of them and saying, oh, I, I know people with those roles, those gifts. Might not be me, might not be you, but we can identify people, especially if we would use the word pastors for shepherds. But notice the ultimate goal here and the role of these to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up the body of Christ. Pay attention to that last part. The work of the church leaders is to do what? Equip the saints. All of us. For the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. You know, maybe this is another misuse of a word in our Christian culture. If I were to ask you, oh, what church do you go to? Okay, who's, who's the minister at that church? You might, the pastor might pop in your head and you might say his name. But according to this, who should be the minister at the church? Equipping us for ministry implies, you know, we're all ministers. Minister is the one that does the ministry. So if somebody asks you who the minister of your church is, I think the correct answer should be all of us. I think that's what Paul is encouraging us here. That's part of this calling. We're all called, we're all equipped to ministry. 
And this is important. We're, we're going to see in the next few verses why building up the body, why us doing our part for the work of the ministry, for building up the body is important. Verse 13, until we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that may we no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. I don't need to tell you how much of that exists in our culture. And if we're not striving to become more mature, we will be tossed to and fro. That's why being equipped to do the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ is so important. Paul knew that these waves and winds of false doctrines existed back in his day as they do today. And this is a lifelong process. It's not something that happens to us overnight. Maturity is a a long process. Finally, let's wrap this up. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The body is working properly if each of us is doing our part. And so doing, we are helping the body to to build itself up. There's no just an adjunct part to the body of Christ. We're all essential. There's no supplementary part as opposed to an essential part. We're all essential. Which brings us back to the start of the chapter where we started this morning. That Paul was urging us because we're all essential, because we've all been equipped, because we have this role to play to build up the body. He's urging us to live lives worthy of this calling to which we have been called. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it does apply today, even though it was written thousands of years ago, 2,000 years ago. God, we thank you for the gifts that you have poured out on each and every one of us believers here this morning. We thank you for the calling that you have given each and every one of us. As we continue to grow, as we continue to mature, as we continue to renew our minds, Help us to discover our specific giftedness. Help us to discover our specific roles of ministry. Help us to live out this challenge from Paul to live lives worthy of this calling to which we have been called. And God, this morning, go with us as we go back to classes. Help us to continue to study and grow and process Be with us in the struggle of the semester when we have lots of things to do. May that be yet another thing that helps to refine and grow and mature us. It's in your name we pray. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please share so others can benefit from it as well. And be sure to check out our other podcasts at rosedale.edu slash podcasts.